Well, if you have your Bible this morning, you can go to Ephesians chapter 5. If you don't have one with you, there should be a, a Bible there in front of you in the, in the pew rack there. So you can go to Ephesians 5. Today we'll be in verses 22 through 24. I'll give you some time to get there. Ephesians 5, 22 to 24. We've been in Ephesians for a, a long time now. This is the section that we approach. And last week we kind of took a step back because this is getting to a section that talks about husbands and wives. Uh, then it will talk about parents and children. <clears throat> then it will actually talk about in the home. You'll see like slave, slave master type of thing uh, that we will get to in a few weeks together. But last week we took a step back to talk about marriage. What does the Bible have to say about marriage? Specifically seeing that God has rooted it in creation. That's what's really important when it comes to us talking about marriage and what the Bible has to say about marriage is the understanding that it was rooted in creation, not, not in culture, not in, not in something else, but before sin ever was in this world, God had established marriage, and he, he rooted it in creation alongside some under thing, other things that are really hot-button issues in our world, but things like gender, gender roles, sexuality, our need for companionship, man's dominion over the earth. These are things that are rooted in creation. And again, the fact that it's rooted in creation is important. It's a very important point because it can't be something that's just washed away or that we can say is undone now because of something else because that's not the, that's not the case. Now you remember last week we also talked about how you need to make a decision in your life about the belief of what the Bible says. Do we believe what the Bible says or do we believe of some of what the Bible says? We've talked about this many times, but the Bible does not allow you to believe some of what the Bible says. You have to either believe the Bible or say, I don't believe the Bible. And you have to stand on that truth. And I, I say that because as we approach these passages that we're looking at, it becomes important for us to stand on truth and to say that we stand on truth. To say, no, I believe in God's word. I believe this is what God's word says and as a Christian, being saved by God's grace, by faith in Christ, I'm going to do the things that God has called me and us to do in our world. And again, that's important because I could even sense last week and what we talked about, and probably even more so today and next Sunday, how it's kind of uncomfortable to talk about marriage, sexuality, gender. It's very cringeworthy in our society when we talk about this. And the fact is, we are moving farther and farther away of what Scripture commands of us and tells us to the point to where now, if you say, I'm a Christian and I stand on the Word of God and this is what the Word of God says, you probably will be looked at maybe as a bigot, as unloving. And that's really not the case. We, we need to not come across that way. Sometimes we actually deserve that <laughs> as Christians, the way we handle these sort of things. We are rude about it. We are maybe a little bigoted about it, but we shouldn't push to the side the truth. And we need to be willing to share the truth in a, in a loving way, but also understand why it is truth. And so like I said, over the next few weeks, we'll be looking at marriage, specifically with husbands and wives. And we need not shy away from this teaching. We need not be ashamed of it, of what it says, because we believe that what the Bible has for us is what actually makes humanity flourish, what actually makes humanity 
work well. And so this is why we uphold marriage and and gender and the roles within marriage. So that's how I want you to hear that as we go through this. The teachings that God gives us in his word is for your marriage to flourish, for your marriage to succeed and to be God-honoring and for you to have joy and, and fullness within, within your family and within your household. We need to make sure we see it that way because that's the truth of it. And the fact is this, too. A church doesn't create good, flourishing families. I think good, flourishing families will create a good church family. That's what will happen. And so in order for our church, North Michigan Baptist Church, to really succeed in fulfilling the mission that God has given us, we need good families, honoring the word of God, obeying the word of God, doing their best to love each other, to train each other, to do the things that God's word is going to share with us. And if we do that as individual families, I know that it will then be reflected in the body of Christ here, but North Missionary Baptist Church, where we will see a flourishing within the body of Christ. So let's look at Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 24. And I do need to say, I did not plan Valentine's Day being tomorrow and getting here. I started preaching in Ephesians a year, over a year ago. So this is not on me, okay? Ephesians 5, 22 through 24. It says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. It's a tough passage. Again, I told you it's, it, it pushes back from things of culture. But the way that I want to start this this morning is talking about Christ as the head of the church. What does this mean? And it's actually something we already looked at together in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. I want to read that for you this morning. It says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. It's important for us to remember as a church that Jesus is the head of the church. And why is this? Why is Jesus the head? Well, because he died as our savior, but then he rose as our king And so he is the head of of the church, not just Monroe Missionary Baptist Church, but all those who've been saved by God's grace through faith. Jesus is the head. All power and authority, it says, has has been given to him. And so as a church family, this is the Christ that we proclaim, the Christ of the Bible that was just read about. This is what we this is what we do. We don't really have anything else to give to the world. We have Christ. And that's what we why? Because 
He is the head of it. Now, at times, we can kind of get off track with that. We think, no, what we have to give to the world is humanitarian efforts. Or, I don't know, to be nice to people. Or whatever it might be, which, again, aren't bad things. But that's not our head. Our head is Jesus. And that is who we proclaim. Jesus has done what you and what I just simply could not do. He lived the perfect life. He died on the cross for my sins. He took my shame, my guilt, the wrath of God that was deserved for me. He took all of that on on himself. Why? So that I could be saved. So that you could be saved. And so it's him who we preach. It's him who we teach about. It's him who we then live for. And so what we just read here is he has been given and he has earned the position as head of the church. And it's actually very comforting to think about the Great Commission passage in Matthew 28 and verse 18. I'm not going to have you turn there. But Jesus declares when he's talking to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And so that's what we stand on. We serve the one who actually has authority. And he has all authority. And he is the head of the church. And so then, thus, as the body of Christ, which it calls us there in Ephesians 1, We submit to the head. We submit to Jesus Christ. And so the church being called the body of Christ is probably something that you've heard before. It's not something new to you. Meaning we're made up of many different parts. We all work differently. We all have different tasks within us. But we all work together. Probably the most common passage that people go to for this is 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Verses 12 through 27. It should be on the screen as I read it. But you can flip there if you want in your Bible. But here's where we get a lot of this from, from Paul. He says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Again, this is a teaching that's been taught in church for a very long time, and I hope it's something that you've heard before, but all of us within the body of the Christ, we, we have a purpose, just like Paul is talking about here. When you look at your physical body and how your physical body works, we need it all to work to have a good day. 
do we not? Uh, We struggle if any part of it is struggling. It makes it difficult, and you think, well, gosh, it's just a finger. Yeah, but then you can't get your keys out of your pocket. You can't grab anything. You go to wash your hair, and you're like, ah, man, I forgot. My finger hurts. It just disrupts everything. And you think, but it's just a hangnail. But it just drives you crazy. Why? Because there's something messed up with the body. And we need our body all together. And it's interesting because when the Bible talks about our body, it says that all of it is considered equal within the body. And so God has put us together under the head Jesus to exist and to function with Jesus as our head. We, we cannot function without him. Jesus is our source of life. He's the source of all of our functioning. Just like our brain works to tell us what to do and how to do things, so be it with Jesus as well. We do as he pleases. We do as he guides us because we are his body. Well, I think that raises a question that's important for the passage that we're looking at today, is how does the church submit to Jesus then? As the head, how do we do this? Well, I think we do this the same way that Jesus submits to the Father in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Tim Challey's had some good points on this that I'm going to use as well, but in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, which we've read quite a few times through this series, Paul, talking about Jesus, says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. This is an astonishing statement. I mean, it's telling us that Jesus Christ who was fully God and fully man. If anybody in the world ever had the right to complain, ever had the power to do something about what he could complain about, it was him. But yet he did not do that. He submitted and obeyed to the Father. And so first thing I think, when how do we submit to Jesus then? Well, like Jesus, we submit through obedience. Jesus always was saying, I'm here to do the will of the Father. He wanted to do the will of the Father's plan and obey the Father's plan in all things. And then, so then, thus, we are the same way. As the church, we trust the word of God and we obey it, even when we don't like it. In a little bit, we're going to read, uh, in a couple weeks, pa- Pastor Scott's going to preach on it, but children are told to obey their parents. Thus, are, we are the same. Obey the plan and the will of the Father. But Jesus also submitted, not just out of obedience, but out of willingness. We see this in the passage in Philippians that I read. His willingness that he, in humility, he submits to the Father. You remember in Matthew chapter 26, it's the whole garden scene and it's getting pretty hectic and they're there to arrest Jesus and one of Jesus' disciples think, I'm gonna fight for him. I'm gonna fight for Jesus. I'm gonna make sure that they don't arrest him. And you remember the statement he said. He says, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? What's Jesus saying there? Peter, I'm willingly letting them arrest me. I'm willingly going to go to the cross. I'm willingly going to die. I don't need your help. If I didn't want to do this, I wouldn't do it. 
You're not going to help me in that endeavor. And so we see Jesus willingly doing what he did. So also, we as the church, as we submit to Jesus, yes, we obey him, but we willingly give our lives to Christ by grace through faith. We willingly obey him in the things that he has called us to. But then also we submit through confidence. Jesus never seemed to doubt the will of the Father or the plan of the Father. Remember, Jesus would say, I am the truth. No one can get to the Father through me. He's saying, there's no other plan. No other plan is worthy. This is the way to the Father. And Jesus always had full confidence in this. So us as the church. As we submit to Christ, we need to have confidence that this word is true. Confidence that what he says is real and actually is the best thing for me. But Jesus also submitted another way. He submitted through actions. Jesus didn't just talk about taking on flesh and dying. He did it. I'm sure we all know people in our life, they love to talk and not do. Those are the annoying people in the world. They talk and they talk and they talk. It's like, what have you done? Well, what, what are you doing here? I, was, I actually went to a Pistons game this week, and it was kind of frustrating. They're losing by like 30 or whatever it was at the point. And a guy would make a basket late in the fourth quarter, and the, I mean, the bench just erupts. And I'm like, sit down. You are losing by 1,000. What do you have to cheer for? He made an easy basket, and that, that's what I felt like. I'm like, your actions do not allow you to then act that way. Stop it. You're not winning. Jesus walked the walk. It's the same with us. As we submit to the head, Jesus, we can't just talk about it. We have to actually do it and be active in doing it. And then lastly, we see that Jesus submitted completely. His submission to the Father was 100%. And always is and always was. And so also we as a church give ourselves as a living sacrifice, it says in Romans. We are a living sacrifice to Christ because of what he has done for us. We lay our life down at his feet and we say, whatever you would have me to do, I will do. Whatever it is, I am yours because of what you have done for me. You've paid the price for my sin in which I couldn't do. Well, getting back a little more to our passage today, Verse 22, the very first part, says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. I want you to notice, most importantly here, well, maybe not most importantly, but one of the important things is who wives are supposed to submit to, to their own husband. It's not all men. It's not even their father. It's not the multiple people. Scripture's very clear. To your own husband. This is why we've seen throughout history, the wife would take the name of the husband. She is, she is joining alongside of this man who is now her husband to fulfill his purpose alongside of him, to help him in that. And what God has called him to do, the two are becoming one flesh to now do that God-given purpose together. One of the things that you say at a wedding, right? We say the two have become one flesh, united in hopes, aims, and sentiments together. This is why they are coming together now to, to work together, but she's coming together with him, not all men, to him specifically. 
But it says, wives, submit to your own husbands. How? As to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. It's important, ladies, for you to know as, as you are married to your husband, as you submit to your husband, your real motivation in doing that is to honor the Lord. You do this to honor Jesus. Yes, we would hope it's to honor your husband as well, but in the end, you do it to honor Jesus. Just like we see with the kids obeying parents or the employees and employers, it's done to honor Jesus and what he has done for us. We are submitting to him as well. And we do all these things for his glory and for his purposes. Now, don't get me wrong. This works out differently in different marriages. I think for some of you as wives, submission to your husband is a joyful thing. You love your husband and he cares for you and it's reciprocated back and forth. And so for you, you could maybe even say amen to this. Like, I, I see the benefit of this and in my marriage it's great. But in others, I'm sure you don't have that testimony. And so I want to encourage you that as you try to submit to your husband who's difficult to submit to, and we'll get to this a little bit more, but realize you're not doing it just for him. You're doing it to the glory of the Lord. You're doing it to honor Jesus because of what he's done for you. Well, verse 24, as the church submits to Christ, it says, so wives submit in everything to your husbands. This is why I spent so much time talking about the church and the head. Because this is your example, ladies, with your husband. It says, just as the church submits to Christ, so wives submit to your husbands in everything. Now, Please know this, if you push this analogy too far, it falls apart. Absolutely. You say, well, what do you mean by that, Pastor Tim? I mean this, there's no man in here, ladies, who is your savior. Jesus is your savior. There's no man in this room today who knows everything. If they act like they do, you got a bad one, because he doesn't. Doesn't know it all. And so as, as the church submits to Christ, we can look to Christ with absolute, complete confidence that he's all-knowing, all-powerful, everywhere all the time, that he is 100% perfect. And so that's what I mean by this analogy. You cannot push this analogy too far because it will fall apart, just like the parables. But yet you are called. We can't diminish what Paul is calling for here. There is a submission to husbands then in everything. But yes, wives, understand that he is a sinner. And thus sometimes... Your husband will lose his ability to lead. This is seen when husbands try to lead their wives in a way that is sinful or that is binding on the conscience of, of his wife or you see this in cases of abuse or different traumas. The headship is being ruined by the husband and so therefore, again, that analogy, you can't keep pushing it. It would be unfair and sadly some pastors have done this in cases of abuse or even sin to say, well, it says submit, so keep submitting to him. And that's false. That's a false truth. He's given up his authority as headship when he does that. Just like with civil leaders, I would say, as the church tries to obey civil leaders, I would say, we need to do that. God has called us to do that. But if they tell us to start sinning, we stop listening to them. We now obey God. Right? Who are you going to serve? Caesar? God? We serve God. Well, it's the same in the family. Who are you going to serve? Your husband who's leading you to sin? Or God, God, he's your savior. Jesus is your savior. 
So for the church, as we submit to Christ, knowing that he will, fail, he will never fail us, yes, wives, at times, husbands will fail, but yet, you're called to submit to him, barring sin. And so, I think the question that we can finish with is, what does this look like? What does this look like, then, in a, in a marriage relationship, this whole submission thing, which we talked about last week, is a difficult word. People hate this word. But first, I want us to understand this. It does not look like inferiority. Remember, God created man and woman in his image and in his likeness. Yes, there are different roles, but both are equal. Both are equal. The roles are different, but they, but they are equal in value to the Lord. Sin is what has caused the thinking that, well, the head must be better than the body. No, not in this case, not of marriage, not, not, not at all. We look at this in all different aspects. I, I doubt that you would say this, but we've all felt it. Well, I'm just an employee. My boss is more important than me. They have a higher status. They're the one I answer to. Thus, they are more valuable to this company. And then it goes up on the line, right? And, and that's what we say. They're, they're more valuable, whatever it is. We, we have this within us. This is our natural tendency. And a lot of times we try to carry this to marriage or to different roles that God has given within church life. But that's not the case. We are made equal. Yes, Eve was made after Adam by his ribs, Scripture tells us, to come alongside Adam as his helper to fulfill his God-given task. This is what, what has happened. And again, they are, they are equal in this. There's a Matthew Henry quote that I want to read for you. might be a little out of place. I might be forcing this in here, but I, I really liked it. It says, The woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam. Not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. Not inferior at all. Again, this is normally what the world throws back at us when we try to teach these things, but no. Husband and wife are equal, made in the image of God. So not inferior, but it is active. Husbands and wives work together, often in different ways, depending on the marriage. And I say that because there's no cookie-cutter marriage. There's no way to do that. You can't look at somebody else's marriage and say, that's exactly how we're going to be. No, you're not. It's not going to work that way. Now, you could maybe pull some things from people and say, we want to work on that. But all marriages are going to look different. And the reason for that is, wives, you have different skills than other wives. Husbands have different skills than other Husbands, and so as you work within that skill set, with your abilities, with the gifts and talents that God has given you, you will be working, hopefully, alongside of your husband and figuring out, how are we going to make all of this stuff work? Sadly, sometimes what I see when this is taught, what's said is, husbands, you make every decision. Every single decision is yours. You must make it in the end. I don't think that's what this is teaching at all. There are definitely times in our marriage where it's like, Mandy, you know way more about this than me. I have no idea. I'm going to trust you. I love you. You care about me. I care about you. I think, I think we need to go with your decision. I think, we need to, I think you're making the wiser decision than what I, what I would make. So we need to go with that. Well, some would say, well, you're giving up your headship. No, I'm not. I'm using it wisely. She's smarter than me in this. If I, the way to abuse my headship would to say, no. We are doing it my way, right off the edge of the cliff, till we all die. Let's do it. 
That's bad leadership. That's bad authority. Those are the people we don't want to follow. And so all of our marriages are going to look different as we do it together. I want us to understand that. One of the things you should read on your own time, I don't want to do it this morning, but it's Proverbs 31. Because Proverbs 31 talks about women and wives, talking to like a, a young man about this is the wife that you should be looking for, or this is the woman that you should be looking for for your wife. And, and you'll notice as you read that, the, wife, the woman is very active, very active in that. Yes, she submits to her husband and she loves her husband, yet it's not a case where she just sits at home pregnant and her feet up. That's not a case at all. She has a job outside the home in Proverbs 31. She makes extra money. She goes out to the field and picks in the field. It says the town knows her. And she does such a good job of loving her husband. It says the town actually respects her husband. And what you kind of get from it is because of her. Because of how good of a wife she is. There's great respect for the husband because of how, how great she is. Now I'll warn you of this. As you read Proverbs 31, please understand this. That woman does not exist perfectly. And I don't say that like in a joking matter. I say that for women as they read Proverbs 31 and they think, this is what I have to attain to, you're not going to do that. Just like me as a pastor, I'm not gonna be able to fulfill 1 Timothy 3 and what I'm supposed to be as a pastor. Because it says as a pastor, you're supposed to be blameless. Well, I'm out. It's giving you this idea, this is who you should be looking for. These are, this is the type of woman that you should be, be looking for. These are the general qualities. Is it gonna be perfect? Gosh, no, no way. But look for a wife that will love you like this and care for you like this. Third thing, as, we, as wives submit to their husbands, they do it to honor her husband. And I think this is very important. One of the goals of wives should be to honor their spouse in all things. It's a great love to know that your wife wants what's best for you all the time. And I would dare say in your relationship as marriage, when you think about your marriage, some of the biggest bumps in the road come because you guys start to question, do they really want what's best for me? I mean, just think about your marriage. I, I, I bet I'm right. I would almost guarantee I'm right. You start to think, I don't think he really cares about me and the decisions he's making. Husbands, you start to think, I don't think my wife even respects anything I say or do. I don't think she notices anything I do. Because if I watch TV, it says, if I do the dishes and if I do laundry, I'm basically gonna get my way for the next week. That's not true. I found that to not be true. I've tried it out. I had to tell her, guess what I did? I did laundry and dishes this week. But what is it? What, what is it that creeps in? I wonder if she even cares about me. And it, listen, it, be, it becomes easy for that to happen. As you have kids, as your life starts to get busy, you start to focus on your children, you start to focus on your career, you start to focus on all these different things, and you start to wonder, who's this person I'm laying next to tonight? Do they like me? Would they rather me go somewhere else? Should I get a hotel room maybe? Right, we, we, we really start to question that. And what is it from? It's from this. We do wonder does she really want what's best for me? And so, ladies, I think that this is a valuable thing to try to do, to try to make sure your husband knows that you love him 
that you do want what's best for him, that you care for him. I was talking about this with Pastor Spencer, and he brought up a, a good example in Scripture of Abigail and Nabal back with David. Remember, Nabal was a dirty scoundrel of a man. David had taken care of him, had taken care of some of his people, and King David goes to Nabal and is like, can you shelter us? Can you give us some food? And Nabal was like, absolutely not. And so David was ready to take up arms against Nabal and to, to kill him and his family. And who stepped in? Nabal's wife, Abigail. She steps out without her husband knowing, goes out to meet King David and says, please don't do this. My husband's not making the best decision here. But she was looking out for the care of her husband to try to save him and to protect him and to protect his things and steps in between him and David and says, David, please relent. Now, some would say, oh, she's overstepped her bounds. I would say, no, what she's doing is honoring, respecting, and loving her husband well in this instance. And I'm not working for Nabal because he couldn't catch on to that. He ends up dying. But Abigail wanted him to flourish. Too often I see this and I hear this. And I could say from both spouses, today we're speaking to wives because I'm guilty of this as well. It's something I try to work on often. But we speak ill of our spouses around other people. And our spouses hear that. And then we wonder, why do they think I don't like them? Well, it's because you're talking bad about your husband all the time. He hears it. He's not dumb. He hears what you're saying. He hears you tell everybody that he's lazy. You know, he hears these things. He never helps with the kids. He never does this around the home. He hears all of those things, and they might be true, maybe. But why do we have a need to parade that around? It just hurts us, and it hurts each other. And so we need to be careful with that. I want to read one last quote. This comes from a man, his name's Ian Hamilton, in his commentary on Ephesians. He asked some questions at the end of this section that I think are helpful when it comes to the idea of honoring your husband, and this whole thing of submission. He says, wives, do you submit to your husband's God-appointed leadership? And I want to stop there. Know that. The leadership of the husband in the marriage is a God-appointed one. It's not one we took on for ourselves. It's not one that we grabbed and said, yep, I want that. It's one God has given the husband. It's a God-appointed thing. And so he asked, wives, do you submit to your husband's God-appointed leadership? Do you submit gladly out of love? Do you help him to live up to his calling? Do you pray for your husband to have the courage, grace, wisdom, and humility to be your head? Husbands, do you make it as easy as possible for your wives to submit to your headship? Do you treat your wife as your spiritual equal? Do you tell her, as the Lord so often tells his bride, that you love and cherish her? Do you treat her with gentleness and thoughtfulness? Do you listen to her and have the humility to lead her when necessary by following her? See, our marriage relationship should be one where we have a desire to see each other flourish, to see each other honor the Lord well, and so we need to both make sure we're working towards that. And wives, the task that you have been given is to submit to your husband in order for that to happen. But then lastly, not just honoring your husband, but as I'd already mentioned, it is to honor her Savior, Jesus, as she submits to her husband. Submitting to your husband as to the Lord. Wives, I would implore you and beg you to look past the imperfectness of your husband. 
and to see the perfectness of Christ. For some of you, like I said, that's going to be a lot harder to do than for others. For some of you, you're in a relationship where you feel your husband is trying to help you flourish, but others, that's not the case. So it's very hard for you to see past all of his dirtiness and all of his filthiness and all of his sin and to see the perfectness of Christ and to know the reason I am submitting to this man is because of him. But I would beg you to do it. I would beg you to strive to continue to love your husband in his sinful state. I think so often we start to think about the extremes and the horribleness of what could be within a marriage. But I'm guessing, for most of us in here, we're not on those extremes. I would hope, talking to you as a church, that many of you are trying, that husbands, a lot of you are trying, which next week's your week. I'm looking more forward to that week than this week for sure. But husbands, that you're trying. You're trying to love your wife. And I I hope that you are. And wives, I I hope that you're striving and trying to submit to your husband and, and to love him well. And I think a way to help that is to look to the perfection of Jesus to serve Jesus by submitting to your husband. And as you do this, wives, as you do this, this is part of that great mystery that Paul is getting to, talking about Christ and the church. As you do this, you show the world life beyond sin. You do. It will floor your friends when you do this. Your husband asks you to do something dumb, whatever it might be. I don't know. It could be something Not sin, again, but just something silly. And you do it. I have no doubt your friends would say, why in the world did you do that for your husband? He could have easily done that himself. Can he not do this himself? I mean, what a way for you to honestly respond. Say, yeah, he probably could, but I love him. Me and him are married under God, and I want to honor him. Now, it would be very easy to talk bad about your husband in that instance and say something awful. But it's also a great way to honor and to cherish him. And hopefully he'd notice that. Again, I I know this is very difficult because of sin. And as I said, next week I'll get the chance to talk to husbands because a lot of this does hinge on us as men, how we treat our wives and how we love our wives. It takes two to do this well. So hopefully you'll come back next week as we go through the rest of this little section. In Ephesians. But wives, the world is pushing at you to get rid of this word submission. They're saying it's weighing you down. They're saying it's slowing you down. They're saying it's, it's making you actually incomplete. That you have more value than this or whatever. They're throwing all kinds of words onto this to make it sound like a horrible thing. But I want to remind you, this is what God has given us for you to flourish for your husbands to flourish, for your families to flourish, and for your church to flourish. That's why I say you have to make the decision. Is this book true or is it not? And you can't pick and choose. You either have to take it as a whole or you have to get rid of it as a whole. It doesn't work that way to just piece it together. And if we wholeheartedly believe, I believe this is God's word and it's true, I believe Jesus is real. I believe what the Bible says he has done for me is real. And I believe he's done it for me. And by faith, I've, I've submitted to him. Well, then the call for wives is simple. Submit to your husbands as to the Lord 
in everything. Care for him. Love him. Cherish him. Honor him. Let him know that he's loved. And trust that God will use that in your husband's heart to cherish and love you more and more and more and to see your marriage flourish. Just as we submit to Christ, just as we love him, wives love your husbands. That's what it says, submit. Let's bow together this morning. Let's pray. God, I want to thank you for this passage in Ephesians. And God, I know we only looked at the first half this morning with wives. And God, again, I, I know how off-putting it is to hear this for many, for our culture, for sure. It's seen as unloving, uncaring. But God, we need to stand on your word and This is what your word tells us to do within the marriage relationship. That husbands should love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. That wives submit to their husbands. And so God, we want to have marriages that fulfill this well. And so God, I pray for all the women here this morning that you would encourage them, that you would equip them, that you would help them to see that This is what you've called them to do within their marriage, to come alongside their husband to fulfill the God-given purpose God has bestowed upon him. And so I pray that their marriage would flourish. I pray, God, that as wives do their best to submit, that their husbands would take notice, that their husbands would love them well and and care for them. God, I I pray that within these marriages that also have children, that I pray that the kids would realize and recognize what's happening within the marriage and that they would see a loving bond that just cannot be separated, a bond that's centered on you as they come in covenant together within their marriage before God, that they would love each other well, that they'd raise their kids well, as we're going to talk about in a couple weeks. But again, God, I know that this is pretty countercultural to the stuff that we hear. and A lot of times people would say, man, they must be bigots or they... They really are not loving. God, I pray that it wouldn't be seen that way, that it wouldn't come across that way, that it would, no, we're we're very loving. We love Jesus. And this is what he's given us. This is what he's told us for the good of marriage, for the good of society as a whole. Our good, healthy marriages being lived out in the way that your word describes it for us. And so God, help us to be faithful to that, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.